good afternoon, everyone. I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, thank you all for being here today, uh, and thanks, as always, to our conference staff and our tech guys uh, for helping us uh, with these events. Um, they do a great job. We do a lot of events here at Cato, and they're, they're terrific. Uh, welcome also to those of you watching on, uh, on the internet there at uh, cato.org, that their internet thing. Um, North Korea's nuclear ambitions have uh, persisted through the Clinton, Bush, and now Obama administrations. Uh, indeed, the North is expected to possess as many as 100 nuclear warheads by 2020. Uh, Pyongyang is also developing the missile capability that could strike U.S. bases in the Pacific and perhaps even someday the United States itself. Virtually no one believes that the Kim regime will voluntarily relinquish its growing arsenal. Some measure of pressure and coercion is required. Many American policymakers see China as the best means to pressure North Korea to change course. Yet Beijing has so far continued to underwrite the Kim regime. So the question is, or the questions are, what must the United States and its allies do to convince Beijing to cut commerce with the North? Would such a course most likely result in reform in Pyongyang or a North Korean collapse? Uh, could the latter be worse than the status quo? Uh, these and other questions inform this just-released Cato paper, Will China Solve the North Korea Problem? There are copies available in the, uh, in the foyer there, in the hallway. And for those of you watching online, the, this paper uh, is on the Cato website and uh, on the uh, Defense and Foreign Policy Team's homepage. Um, uh, the paper is by my colleague, uh, Doug Bondow. Uh, Doug is a senior fellow here at Cato, specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He worked as special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and editor of the political magazine, Inquiry. He writes <coughs> regularly for leading publications such as Fortune, National Interest, and the Wall Street Journal. And he speaks frequently at various academic conferences, college campuses, and business groups. He's been a regular commentator on all the TV programs, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, et cetera, et cetera, and he holds a JD from Stanford University. Uh, we're joined here on the stage today by Bonnie Glazer. Uh, she is a senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at CSIS, where she works on issues related to Chinese foreign and security policy. Prior to joining CSIS, she served as a consultant for various U.S. government offices, including the Departments of Defense and State. Uh, Bonnie has written extensively on various aspects of Chinese foreign policy, and her writings have been published in the Washington Quarterly, International Security, New York Times, as well as various edited volumes on uh, Asian security. She received her bachelor's degree in political science from Boston University and her MA from Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies. And then to my left is Scott Snyder. Scott's a senior fellow for Korea Studies and director of the Program on U.S.-Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Prior to joining CFR, Scott was a senior associate in the International Relations Program at the Asia Foundation. He's the author of numerous books, including The Japan-South Korea Identity Clash, East Asian Security in the United States, co-authored with Brad Glosserman. He received a, a BA from Rice University and an MA from the Regional Studies East Asia Program at Harvard. And he was a Thomas G. Watson Fellow at Yonsei, Yonsei. Yonsei University in South Korea. So I want to get things started. We're uh, obviously set up here more as a, as a discussion, conversation, as opposed to the traditional 
remarks behind a podium. I hope it makes for a more uh, free-flowing discussion. I want to get things started and just note that when Doug and I first talked about uh, the possibility of a, of a long paper explaining, uh, exploring what it would take to get the Chinese to shift course and to seriously pressure North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons, we knew that it would be a long shot. We knew that it would be a, a tough sell. Uh, it might have just gotten longer uh, in the last few days um, uh, I, because of the tenuous or at least uncertain state of U.S. Uh, Sino-U.S. relations today. And so I really want to start off by, by asking all three panelists to, to, to ponder a little bit the, the ramifications, the implications of uh, uh, President-elect Trump's phone call with uh, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, what impact is that likely to have on U.S.-China relations and especially on this effort to enlist Beijing's uh, aid against North Korea? Will uh, Beijing, uh, could they use North Korea issue as leverage against Trump, perhaps with respect to Taiwan? Or uh, is the North Korea issue, nuclear issue, important enough uh, to warrant cooperation uh, regardless of U.S.-Taiwan policy? Uh, why don't you start with that, Doug, and then we'll uh, hear from Bonnie and Scott. Well, I think it's very interesting. The question, from my mind, with the Trump ad incoming Trump administration is whether the phone call you know, to Taiwan's president was part of a larger strategy in trying to attempt to put pressure on the PRC potentially to achieve a number of gains. I mean, this is a, an incoming president who has talked about a lot of trade issues, threatened a 45% you know, tariff, has you know, talked very tough. So one could imagine this as being kind of an opening gambit where you throw out there and don't follow up, but it's part of a larger strategy. Or is it just a one-off? The New York Times did a story which indicated that it may have come from Bob Dole, who's lobbying apparently for Taiwan. And I think that matters a lot. I mean, I'm skeptical at this stage that Trump and his advisors that he has have thought this through deeply. I mean, as, as far as we know, there's no Secretary of State yet. I mean, Trump may have decided and simply is playing the reality TV show for, for all of us. That's <laughs> certainly possible. But if you don't have somebody yet tapped for state, it's hard to imagine you're starting to plot long-term strategy with the PRC. So I could imagine a thoughtful president and strategy in which you could bring in the Taiwan issue rather carefully as a, you know, if you, China, don't do business with us elsewhere, you know I'm getting pressure here to be nicer to Taiwan. But it's not clear to me that's what they're thinking of. And if they're not thinking of it that way, then I think it's potentially damaging where they just toss it out. On the other hand, at the moment, Beijing has responded fairly carefully, and that may reflect their waiting to see what the actual administration is. So that, that may give some time to repair any damage that might have been done, that as long as they're not flying off the handle, they're waiting when there's a secretary of state, when there's a strategy, you know, perhaps they could move forward. Uh, Bonnie, maybe I'd turn to you next. I mean, clearly, Taiwan is an extremely important issue to Beijing. Uh, we presume North Korea is, is less important. But uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit more uh, in terms of how, uh, whether or not this, uh, if there was a, a major change in U.S. policy with respect to Taiwan, uh, would Beijing be considerably less likely uh, to want to assist us? Uh, uh, and uh, might they use that as leverage with us against uh, on the Taiwan issue? Well, I would start by saying that I agree with everything that, uh, that Doug just said. Uh, I think it remains to be seen whether or not Trump has a strategy. After all, uh, we have heard that immediately after 
Trump's uh, election, there was a list drawn up of people that they wanted to have phone calls with, foreign leaders, and that uh, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen was on that. Uh, and we don't know whether Trump himself uh, accepts uh, the notion that Taiwan could be used as part of a, uh, as a strategy to put uh, pressure on uh, Chinese leaders. So it's, it, it really is too early to draw any of these conclusions. Uh, but I guess what I would like to underscore is that there are a number of reasons why China has been reluctant to work with the United States that are very separate from Trump's phone call to Taiwan's president. And so even if the United States is not going to strengthen its relationship with Taiwan, uh, we still face an, enormal, uh, an enormous uphill battle. Uh, we've just seen at the UN in the Security Council resolution the Chinese didn't want to completely eliminate the livelihood clause. The Chinese continue to make statements that uh, they will uh, comply with the resolution, but they are not going to reduce trade with North Korea. They don't want to harm the North Korean people. And of course, against the background of everything that's taking place uh, in North Korea is the strategic competition between the United States and China that we've seen uh, growing over the Obama administration. And uh, China's uh, concerns about U.S. intentions towards domestic stability in China as China continues to fear that somehow the U.S. is supporting color revolutions against it. Um, and then, of course, there's U.S. activity in the South China Sea, which, uh, regardless of what uh, I think Trump's policy is going uh, to be on issues pertaining to Taiwan and North Korea, I expect that we will have uh, competition there. So uh, in the background, there is also a question about whether this incoming president, because he's a businessman, could be more transactional. Some people in China are talking about the potential for deals. We do something for China on Taiwan. They do something for us on North Korea. I think that's unlikely. I don't rule it out. Uh, but one thing that I would say is that uh, China is not going to do anything regarding North Korea that is truly against Chinese interests. And what China has done so far on North Korea is really not done as a favor to the United States. Uh, the Chinese are very concerned about North Korea's uh, development of nuclear weapons, the provocations that have been taken. The Chinese have years ago accepted that sanctions are necessary to influence uh, North Korea's behavior. They want more positive inducements as well, and they don't like the balance that exists today. So it's a very, very complicated issue bringing this Taiwan factor into it, the most um, dangerous uh, issue, one of, uh, about which China is completely neurologic, the notion that its sovereignty is being challenged, that just makes it even more complicated. Right. Scott? Well, I, I agree uh, with uh, the idea that uh, the phone call itself uh, provides uh, just a little taste, but it's premature to make any kind of... Um, uh, reasoned judgment about how the U.S.-China relationship is going to go at this point. But I think that what it raises is an interesting question and or choice that the Trump administration is going to face uh, in the U.S.-China relationship, uh, and that is to what extent do they want to try to lump issues together uh, as part mm -hmm. of uh, and, and, and manage the relationship 
uh, broadly in geostrategic terms or in the context of tone? Uh, and to what extent are there issues that they might want to isolate uh, and deal with on an issue-by-issue -issue basis? And I think it remains to be seen how that's going to play out with regard to Taiwan. Uh, also, I think with North Korea, the trend over the course of the past year has been for the North Korea issue to become embedded uh, in the broader geostrategic angst of the U.S.-China relationship. <coughs> right. Uh, and so, you know, I'd actually like to see uh, a new administration come in and try to isolate North Korea from the broader uh, U.S.-China relationship uh, by signaling that it's important because it is very much an urgent issue, uh, perhaps by appointing a special envoy specifically empowered by the president to talk to China uh, about uh, how to manage uh, North Korea uh, and to kind of uh, separate the North Korea issue from every other issue in the US-China relationship because otherwise it's gonna get buried and yet we know uh, that it's uh, increasingly urgent. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe as a follow-up to that, Scott, <clears throat> I mean, is reliance on China the, the, the only feasible strategy? I mean, is it, or is it this sort of like a Hail Mary pass at the end of a football game? It's unlikely to work, but really all, the only option available? Or do you think that uh, sanctions or even uh, the use of force preventive war are still uh, uh, you know, workable strategies for eliminating North Korea's nuclear program? I think American analysts have been chasing their tails regarding uh, the extent to which China can be helpful uh, on North Korea for about uh, 15 years now. Um, my view is that cooperation with China uh, is necessary in order to deal with the issue, but it's not sufficient. Okay. Because China and the United States have differing uh, fundamental interests when they look uh, at the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and the most important uh, gap between the U.S. and China is over the desired end state uh, right. of the peninsula. We right. see a unified Korea uh, with South Korea leading. Uh, they want a, a friendly Korean peninsula as a fundamental prerequisite mm -hmm. for any sort of solution. And so as much as we have limited agreement uh, over the necessity of denuclearization, uh, I think this fundamental geostrategic gap between the United States and China over desired end state, preferred instruments, uh, differing preferences over ideology, uh, you know, all of those factors um, will prevent China from ever uh, doing everything that the U.S. wants, uh, and particularly the stability versus denuclearization gap, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, I, clearly China wants to see stability. We have to convince uh, China that North Korea under Kim Jong-un is inherently unstable uh, and therefore uh, uh, costly to their interests. But ultimately, my view is that we're going to have to find some other alpha uh, beyond U.S.-China cooperation, maximize U.S.-China cooperation, but then uh, find the missing ingredient. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and Doug has a number of ideas on this, right. I know. Uh, dialogue, pressure. Uh, but we have to figure out how to keep the... Uh, U.S.-China cooperation balloon from shrinking while also finding that missing ingredient. Uh, Doug or Bonnie, I mean, uh, Scott says necessary but not sufficient. Uh, you, either of you care to expand on that a little bit in terms of China's role in, in this? Well, the challenge to my mind is to find the alternative. I mean, I, I really don't think many people believe they will be the North will be talked out of its nuclear arsenal. There may be intermediate objectives they might be willing to negotiate over, perhaps a genuine verifiable freeze, perhaps some confidence building steps, conventional forces, or something else. But I, it's at this stage, given what they've invested, it's hard to imagine the North 
being prepared to voluntarily yield up its nuclear arsenal. Among other things, because from their standpoint, it's a pretty good deal. I mean, among other things, if you're worried about the U.S. attacking you, as it's attacked a number of non-nuclear powers, having nukes is a pretty good deterrent. You might not trust the U.S. particularly after the U.S. took out Muammar Gaddafi, who's stupid enough, as the North Koreans pointed out, to give up his nuclear program and his, his um, missile programs. That, uh, you know, and it's a nice tool of extortion. And frankly, who on earth would pay attention to you if you didn't have nuclear weapons? You're an impoverished, you know, small state, isolated, very tragic, but with virtually no reach beyond your own borders. So there are a lot of reasons I think the North would like to have one and probably isn't going to give it up. So we can try diplomacy, six-party talks, and other things, but I, the inducement we can offer strikes me as probably not enough. You know, sanctions, unless the, the China wants them to work, aren't likely to work. And even then, I think there is an issue, you know, is the North willing to say they don't care? You know, half a million or more people starved to death in the late 1990s. The regime certainly doesn't care about the welfare of its own people. You know, would, would sanctions even fully imposed bring down the regime, cause it to change? We don't know. <clears throat> but at this, this stage, the, the Chinese don't seem willing to allow that to happen. And it strikes me military preventive war would be extraordinarily reckless and, and potentially set off <clears throat> destruction you know, certainly of Seoul, you know, that uh, you know, kind of the, the, the South Korean state and, and people. So I don't see another good alternative out there. The problem is, given China's interests, as Scott indicated, is a bit of a Hail Mary. We can't think of much of everything else. We've tried everything else to one degree or another. You know, what else do we have that might seem to work? And I don't see any, you know, many good ideas out there. Uh, maybe ask Bo Bonnie to jump in on this because uh, is it, is it truly the only thing left? What about so-called smart sanctions? What about the sanctions? I, I take Doug's point very seriously, the sort of moral component of uh, economic isolation that uh, in part is having uh, a horrific effect on the, on the uh, well-being of the people of North Korea, but of course uh, the regime is, is ultimately implicated in that. Uh, are there other ways to sanction the regime that could put pressure? And again, this, this involves a question of how much is China willing uh, to go along with those sanctions. We, we alluded at the very beginning that in this last round of UN sanctions, uh, China, China pushed back on that. So I'm curious if you'd comment on, on the sanctions a bit more. Well, I think that there are people who've done some very good work on uh, how Iran-like sanctions could be applied to the North Korea case. It's, it's a myth that North Korea is the most sanctioned country in the world. There's a lot more that could be done. The citing of the, uh, of the uh, Dandong Hongxiang company in China uh, by the United States as part of our secondary wow. sanctions uh, probably had uh, more of an impact uh, than some of the sanctions that have been in the UN Security Council resolution because all of a sudden Chinese companies are on the alert that they could suffer uh, if uh, they continue to be a conduit of goods or money uh, to North Korea. Uh, and more of this could be done. There's a long list of Chinese companies. Uh, but uh, so I agree with Doug and Scott that if China really wants to undermine our sanction strategy, if we're really focused on squeezing North Korea and China decides that that's not in their interest, they can, they can clearly undermine that, that strategy. So I, I agree with Scott. Yes, we have, it, it, is, um, it is necessary, but not sufficient. And there are other aspects that we haven't talked about yet. Um, one is, of course, 
is, is, there a, is there a diplomatic component to our strategy towards North Korea that we, um, that we should uh, think about, revive, or reshape? And, and I want to mention here just one point that was made by Chinese Foreign Minister uh, Wang Yi several months ago, in which he talked about uh, the possibility that there could be different configurations of talks with North Korea. And so he mentioned three-party, four-party, five-party. Well, those of us who've been following this uh, <laughs> issue for a long time know that the United States, especially under the George W. Bush administration, was very keen to have five-party talks. In other words, you leave an empty seat at the table and say, North Korea, you want to come back. Okay. But the rest of us are really going to talk about um, the future of the Korean Peninsula. And that's something, um, from what I have been told, has not really been seriously considered or followed up on. Uh, so I think that's something that, at least, you know, the diplomatic piece, people have other ideas, but I think that one in particular is something that might be picked up by a Trump administration. What about the use of force? That clearly hasn't been taken off the table. Uh, people continue to make references to the possibility of the United States using uh, either uh, military action against the sites in particular. Uh, could, could we differentiate those sites from an assault on the regime itself, in which case the regime is likely to react using all means at, at its disposal, including now nuclear weapons, to prevent its ultimate defeat? Is, is military action uh, a viable option at this point? Well, I think the challenge is how does the North perceive a military strike? I mean, one could imagine, and the argument's been made, if we only struck nuclear facilities and we indicated that is all we were doing and that any North Korean military reaction would then be met with destruction of the regime, that one could hopefully deter any expansion. And that's certainly plausible. The, my, my worry is that we live in a world in which the U.S. is engaged in regime change fairly often. So if I'm sitting in Pyongyang, I mean, I know what happened in Libya, and I know what happened in Iraq, and I know, you know, I mean, even more obscure cases, Haiti under you know, Bill Clinton. And I would be rather nervous and skeptical, especially when one president said I was part of the axis of evil, also said how much he loathed, you know, the father of the current dictator, that it would be an awful lot for the North Korean regime to take on trust, that this was not the starting point for regime change, you know, kind of testing a regime and deciding that it was weak and, and deciding to move on. <coughs> so for me, the, the problem there is it's a wild gamble, which is the great success since the Korean War is having prevented another war, acting as a shield for South Korea that's been able to develop into a phenomenally successful and prosperous country. And you know, the, the tragedy is geography, which is the Seoul Pusan metropolis was, you know, was down you know, in... Uh, you know, or Seoul Incheon was down in Pusan as opposed to, you know, by near the DMZ that one could, and one had a layer of territory that was unoccupied by the DMZ, one could take, you know, risk war with the North rather more easily, you know, given the potential of artillery and um, missile attacks on Seoul. And my guess is that South Koreans would not be pleased at the thought of this risk. You know, Bill Clinton, you know, I mean, among others who helped formulate that plan was our current defense secretary when he was an assistant secretary of defense. But apparently Bill Clinton was very serious about using military action, and President Kim Young-sam was not terribly pleased at that thought. So to me, that's the danger, is are you prepared to take this risk? You know, I think that it would be an extraordinary uh, you know, risk with the lives of a lot of people at stake. 
I mean, there are at least there are, there are two, I guess, technically three countries who border North Korea that would have perhaps something to say with respect to military <coughs> action. Obviously, South Korea, but also uh, certainly China. Uh, how, how do you think uh, either? How do you think the Chinese would react? Uh, uh, maybe ask Bonnie this. How, how do you think the Chinese would react in the event of uh, uh, military action along the lines of what was contemplated during the Clinton administration against North Korea? Well, I think when people are considering a conventional strike against North Korea, we uh, it's talked about in the context of different scenarios. So Doug said a uh, strike could be used to take out nuclear facilities. Um, uh, my understanding is somebody who doesn't have access to classified information is that that option really disappeared a long time ago. We don't know where all the facilities are. Um, we don't have the option of just striking Yongbyon and, and eliminating the nuclear capability. Uh, so uh, I, I, I don't think that that's what people are talking about. I think the real discussion today is about whether if there is a, a, a missile that is on a launch pad uh, in North Korea that we believe is armed with a nuclear weapon, do we then launch a preemptive strike against that missile? And there are some people be who believe that an American president um, would be under a great deal of pressure uh, to do that. Uh, there are others who think that th this is why we have a robust missile defense capability. Um, and there's different views on how effective that capability might be. Uh, but uh, we cannot forget the uh, massive conventional capabilities that the, uh, that the North Koreans have against South Korea and the, the um, high likelihood that they would launch an attack on South Korea. And so I would assume we would never launch a conventional strike on North Korea um, regardless of whether it was an, an immediate threat without consulting our South Korean allies. So there are lots of uh, questions here. Um, I tend to think that it could be very, um, very dangerous. Uh, we don't know uh, Kim Jong-un uh, enough to be able to predict how he would react in that scenario. Right, Scott, any thoughts on this? Um, well, I think the discussion of preemption has increased. The really, you know, critical <coughs> issue that, that Bonnie raised, I think, uh, is uh, that the next administration is going to find, uh, because of North Korea's progress uh, towards developing a direct strike capability on the United States, uh, that time is not on our side. Uh, and what that does, uh, if you're thinking of policy options for the president, it, it takes the middle uh, options away. Mm -hmm. and it pushes you either toward use of force or acquiescence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and neither of those options are really acceptable options, I think. And so, you know, one of the big challenges, I think, is going to be how do you find ways, is it possible to buy time uh, in order to employ uh, strategies that are uh, better than the worst case? Uh, and uh, if you find that you, you know, have exhausted that, how do you really develop the uh, collective support? Uh, for um, a uh, preemptive move. And I think the bar is going to be very high for that. As Bonnie suggested, it would really have to be uh, the nuclear-armed missile on the launch pad uh, ready to come in the direction of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think the North Koreans are there yet, uh, but it's conceivable that they will be there within the term of the next president. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the, to, to the missile defense reference, the... the, the 
placement of missile defenses in South Korea is now suddenly another source of tension between the United States, China, and China, and they are okay, where uh, China, South Korea relations, as I understand it, were, were reasonably good and have taken a sort of uh, a sour turn over the last uh, six to 12 months. Um, uh, so that's certainly on the table. Um, I'm curious about, uh, we, we've, we've addressed this briefly, and I, but I, I sort of want to drill down a little bit deeper on it. Is, is it realistic or is it even advisable to focus on uh, lesser goals uh, beside denuclearization? Doug has made uh, his argument quite clear that he thinks that, that the North is highly unlikely to agree to denuclearization. Uh, that's why we need some th- this coercion. But, but on this last point, on the point about missile development and the possibility of, of, of them moving towards a capability that, the, that a U.S. president would be in a, in a very, uh, very difficult position, uh, sh- it, does it make sense to focus on something short of, of denuclearization? Should we focus on ICBM development? Should we focus on arms export or, or further tests? Is, is that something that, that we should do as a maybe, again, because Bonnie raised the issue of sort of the types of diplomacy, not merely the format, but also what you're driving at. Is that, does that make sense? The, the, the number one prerequisite, I think, for being able to have a diplomatic process is going to be to secure a freeze in North Korea's continued development okay. uh, of a nuclear and missile capability. Uh, We actually tried that back in 2012, Mm -hmm. uh, persuasion through negotiation between the U.S. and DPRK. The North Koreans broke the agreement. Mm -hmm. I think the sanctions, really, the goal of sanctions is primarily should be to coerce a freeze. Coerce a freeze. uh, As the basic uh, mechanism by which to potentially get back to uh, a negotiation process. Okay. You've taken away North Korea's perceived alternative of being a nuclear, uh, of, of pursuing nuclear development, uh, and then that might lead them to turn back and say, okay, well, we're stopped on this path. Uh, let's take a look at uh, the other options. So Scott says push for a freeze and then as a gateway to negotiations on other issues. What do you think, Doug? Well, I think that negotiate some form of negotiations with the North, including bilateral, would make sense in part because I do think there are achievable goals that might very well be useful. That is, I'd much prefer to see a North Korea with 20 as opposed to 100 warfeds warheads. I'd like to see a North Korea, if it's going to have warheads that doesn't have you know, continent, intercontinental uh, nuclear or missile capabilities. The other aspect of that, I think, is dealing with the PRC, which is, you know, China has made it very clear that its view is, don't blame us, that ultimately America in many ways is responsible. You have created a threat environment which causes the North to see this as necessary, and that the U.S. should respond by you know, negotiations and changing that threat environment. You know, it's hard to assess what motivates the North. I mean, my presumption is that, in fact, they do worry about threats and they do view the U.S. as a threat, as well as lots of other things. So, you know, it's not as if this is an innocent regime, but I suspect that at least a perception or a fear of American preventive war could very well color their strategy. So, to my mind, sitting down and negotiating and trying to find some areas of perhaps kind of de-escalating the discussions might be useful not only in dealing... Confidence building, right, and confidence building. uh, It's useful not only with the North but also with China. That is addressing one of China's concerns about when we come to them and say, help us, they say, well, why don't you do this? To some degree, doing that would then put us in a better position dealing with Beijing as well as perhaps 
making some progress with the North, though I wouldn't have high hopes. It, it, I think it would be worth pursuing. Bonnie, Can go I, ahead, um, please, please. answer this? Sure. So picking up on what Scott said, I think the question is, do we pursue a freeze with North Korea and abandon the 2005 agreement where North Korea had committed to denuclearization? And I think that what the Obama administration has tried to do is, is uh, shape discussion, the potential for having discussions with North Korea, but on the premise that they return to this commitment. And so uh, what some people are advocating, and I don't know whether Scott Im implied this, is that we essentially should set that demand aside. We should have this goal of uh, achieving a, a freeze using sanctions to coerce that freeze, uh, but we don't have to have this commitment by New North Korea to eventually give up the nuclear weapons. And here I would say that uh, my view is uh, a lot of what we pursued towards North Korea has not worked, and, and what really is necessary is a, is a complete bottom-up review of our policy. Uh, I hope that the administration will engage in that uh, uh, and then make a decision about where we, uh, where we go forward and whether we insist on the 2005 agreement. And the last thing that I wanted to say is that although everybody is focused about the emerging uh, North Korea capability to put a nuclear warhead on an ICBM and deliver it to the United States. Let's not forget that North Korea can already deliver a nuclear weapon in the region, and it can attack U.S. bases, and it can attack U.S. allies, and we have an extended deterrent commitment to those allies, especially Japan. And so it makes me a little uncomfortable when everybody focuses on the threat to the continental United States because American interests are already endangered. Okay. Can I just clarify? I um, uh, don't believe that the United States is ever going to be able to sacrifice the objective of denuclearization of North Korea uh, because of the nonproliferation treaty, because of the implications in terms of the inter-Korean relationship. Uh, and maybe most importantly, because of the concentration of power uh, within the North Korean system, uh, which means that there's really not a check or balance on use. Uh, and so that's the reason why I think we you know, would not be able to uh, abandon denuclearization. Uh, just to make things interesting, I want to present also another possibility mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about how we can come back to the dialogue table, and that is... The North Koreans want to talk about peace treaty. That's a non-starter for us. We want to talk about denuclearization. It's a non-starter for them. Right. But um, what about a peninsular-based dialogue on tension reduction, where the U.S. and ROK work closely to put forward a proposal to North Korea to reduce tensions, uh, move toward a, a more peaceful coexistence than what we have now, mm -hmm. uh, really is the prerequisite for getting to either peace or uh, denuclearization uh, talks. Yeah, I think Doug. I think you've talked about that too, right? Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Expand on it. No, I, I think that. <clears throat> I mean, what we see in North Korea today looks rather interesting in the sense that it's it's a very untested regime with a young leader who, you know, is, is very questionable in certain of his attitudes. Nevertheless, the commitment appears to be to be both economic growth and uh, you know nuclear weapons. And there certainly there are kind of signs of relative prosperity compared to where they once were. That, and it's interesting the changes that might be creating within North Korean society, as well as greater access to media outside South Korean shows and a number of other things. 
So that does suggest that there is at least some change within the North. And the question is, can one appeal to that? And is that something that Kim Jong-un wants to protect? I think the notion of trying to indicate, among other things, I think the North wants the sense of respect of direct dialogue with the US. I think that this kind of a, a proposal that Scott has could provide that, that there's a willingness to talk about a number of issues, both that we care about and what they care about. Again, I would say that we've tried isolation. It isn't working. They're simply continuing to build nuclear weapons, trying to find some kind of a dialogue that moves us into a direction where something useful might come out of it can be helpful, irrespective of all the other issues. Uh, but on that last point, so the North has for some time pushed for the respect that would be afforded by bilateral talks between the United States and North Korea, and the U.S. government has understandably been reluctant to do that, even just on this narrow question of, you know, resolving the, the, the frozen conflict. At a minimum, it would seem to me that South Korea and even China should be involved even in that discussion, right? So, so even if it, there, there's an argument for, at a minimum, including those other countries, even in those, the, that lesser dialogue, would you agree with that? Well, I'd say they should be involved in discussions one can, you know, as Bonnie indicated, I mean, one could imagine one, two, three, four party talks that one wouldn't have to have only one set of discussions. Clearly, a peace treaty implicates South Korea, and one does not want to essentially acknowledge the kind of the North Korean argument, they are merely your flunkies, we only deal with you. Clearly, the ROK needs right. to be involved. And China, having actually been involved in the conflict militarily, obviously has a, a role to play as well. It does strike me that the potential as part of this to have a bilateral engagement would be useful. Okay. Uh, one thing we haven't talked yet uh, today, and I'd, I'd be curious to hear from, from all three of you, is, of course, the ongoing uh, domestic political crisis in, in Seoul. Uh, what does that mean uh, for this discussion? What does it mean for the future of U.S. policy toward uh, North Korea? Will domestic politics, uh, uh, will, that, will that factor in? How will it factor in? Can we, can we specu even speculate on that? Uh, I'd like to hear uh, more about, maybe I guess from Scott first, but sort of the, where, where do you see this uh, political crisis? How do you see it playing out and, and how does it factor into this discussion? Well, South Korea is facing, uh, I think, what's likely to be an extended political vacuum as the National Assembly is about to vote on impeachment of the uh, president. Uh, it will sideline her. There will be an acting president who will essentially have to govern and, and run the, the bureaucracy by committee uh, until the impeachment process plays out and there's the election of a new leader. And how uh, long might that take? Uh, I think probably four to six months, uh, possibly eight months. Okay. Uh, so there's, there's a near-term risk related to the possibility that North Korea could take advantage of that vacuum. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I think that would be ill-advised because the military, U.S. and ROK, will be very sensitive to that. Uh, we've actually seen precedent um, where both Koreas have actually recognized the need to um, hold back. Um, you know, South Korea faced a similar, much more complicated um, uh, transition between authoritarian, authoritarian leaders in 79 and uh, and then we have uh, an electoral process where you actually could see either um, continuity in South Korean policy or a potentially uh, dramatic shift toward uh, an effort to re-engage uh, North Korea. Okay. Uh, and so that's definitely going to be uh, on the agenda and in play uh, as part of South Korea's uh, presidential election that could occur, you know, probably anywhere between June and December of next year. Okay. Um, 
Doug, one of the, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, one of the more controversial proposals put forth in the paper is for the United States to consider uh, dropping its opposition to uh, Japan and South Korea potentially developing their own uh, deterrent, nuclear deterrent against uh, North Korea. And for the benefit of, of, of the audience and those who haven't read it, so you say, uh, of course the decision to go nuclear would remain with Seoul and Tokyo, but China could not ignore the possibility, uh, ignore, could not ignore the possibility. Although it possesses a nuclear arsenal, Beijing has responded sharply to past speculation about its neighbors developing nuclear weapons. Thus, Washington should emphasize that China would have to deal with the consequences if the North pushed the ROK and especially Japan over the nuclear line. The blame would be on the PRC for failing to do more to discourage North Korea's nuclear development. Now, you admit that, this, that even, the, even if the United States were to issue this threat, they might not follow through, and that, again, the decision would ultimately be with Seoul and Tokyo. But Bonnie raised the point earlier that uh, for, us, for us to focus here in the United States too narrowly on the ICBM question ignores the threat that exists right now, the capability that exists right now uh, to, to seriously threaten uh, treaty allies uh, in South Korea and Japan. So I'm wondering if you might expand a little bit on this, this discussion about uh, uh, the, the threat of, of nuclear pro proliferation and then be curious to hear from Bonnie and, and Scott about uh, where they uh, come down on that. Well, there are lots of good reasons not to want proliferation in Northeast Asia. What worries me is that to some degree what we have today, in a sense, is the international equivalent of gun control, which is only the bad guys have guns. That uh, you know, China, Russia, and North Korea all have nuclear weapons, and the U.S. is in a position where it's expected to risk nuclear war to protect its allies from presumably all of those countries in one scenario or another. And indeed, one could imagine you know, those commitments not just to Japan and South Korea, but to the extent to Taiwan, to the extent to Australia, how far we can argue about you know, how, far, how large is that nuclear <laughs> umbrella. And I do think it's worrisome, especially dealing with an actor like North Korea, that if it's expanding its nuclear arsenal and does, in fact, create the capability to, to hit the United States. So there's no good options, it strikes me. <laughs> At the very least, it's time for a discussion. What is the best U.S. policy? Is the best U.S. policy to remain the nuclear guarantor and remain entangled in this very messy situation with some very problematic powers? At the very least, my view is that we should play a little poker, that at the moment the PRC views itself as insulated from potentially the worst consequence of North Korean nuclear expansion, which is the idea that South Korea and particularly Japan might themselves decide to you know, create nuclear weapons. You know, something that Beijing would never want to hear would be you know, Japan and nuclear weapons in the same sentence. And then it might be worth suggesting that the North and its current strategy may very well set a course with very unpredictable consequences, and that China should not presume that the U.S. will forever want to be entangled and the guarantor. And I think that might at least be helpful in jarring you know, folks in Beijing to think more seriously about the consequences. You know, Scott mentioned earlier that we have to convince them that Kim Jong-un is inherently unstable, and I think that's right. You know, one element of that, if we believe he's inherently unstable, is a reason we don't want to necessarily be involved in a nuclear way. You know, that's another aspect that could be emphasized to the Chinese. Bonnie, on this question, so <laughs> how, how sensitive is uh, our Chinese leaders uh, to the, 
the insecurities that uh, the North is presenting to, to the South and Japan, and, and, and is that, are, how, how much uh, are they taking into consideration what, where that might lead? Might that lead not merely to greater uh, conventional capabilities, which, which is likely to occur, it seems to me, uh, but where it could go beyond that? certainly true that China doesn't want to see a nuclear Japan or a nuclear Korea, South Korea. But this is not a card that the United States can play with China. And I think it's useful to have some historical perspective here. Again, in the George W. Bush administration, in an effort to try to motivate China to do more and put more pressure on North Korea, our Vice President Dick Cheney went to China and told the Chinese, just what you are suggesting. South Korea, Japan might go nuclear. You know, this is something you don't want to see, so you should really do more. Well, you know, the Chinese do their own assessments of the likelihood of South Korea and Japan going nuclear, maybe even Taiwan, which is a program we've shut down there a couple of times. And at that time, they correctly saw that this was simply an empty threat. Today, the situation is a little different we had, do have discussion in South Korea and Japan about developing nuclear weapons. I'm sure that the Chinese follow this very closely. And I'm certain that their assessment at this time is that the dangers are not that great. Now, they could change their assessment in the future, but having a U.S. president or vice president try to somehow make a threat to China that this is this is inevitable and you have to do something now. I, d I don't think that that's a, that that's a lever that we, that we have over China, and I actually think it would backfire. So we do have a president-elect who's already talked about this, yeah. so he has yeah, laid the groundwork. Yes. Scott? <laughs> I uh, would have agreed with Bonnie until spring of this year uh, because of what uh, um, then-candidate Trump had to say about alliances. You know, really, the nuclear option for Japan or South Korea I think is only viable in the context of the dissolution of the alliances. Uh, other, otherwise, they're going to rely on uh, U.S. extended uh, deterrence assurances. Uh, and I think that, um, uh, you know, in, in, in one way, uh, from China's perspective, it's kind of a be careful what you wish for kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, it, in a way, I think from Beijing's perspective, is probably so self-defeating for the U.S. Uh, interests uh, in the region that it's probably hard for them to imagine or think about planning uh, for that kind of security environment. So, so you're saying that just as uh, in uh, the mid-2000s, uh, Bonnie, when, when Cheney made this threat and the Chinese perceived it as an empty threat, uh, the same would apply uh, now, that they, they would not actually believe the United States uh, threat to allow this to occur, or, or believe, again, that it wouldn't occur because there is still, there is, while there's talk of it in Japan and South Korea, there's all, also still strong uh, opposition and resistance to exactly. going nuclear. Uh, so that this ultimately was a, is a card that, that we could try to play, but it wouldn't work. I agree with Scott that many other things would have to happen before the Chinese would take that threat seriously. And it's one they would conclude themselves, frankly. The U.S. wouldn't have to raise it right. if they actually thought that our alliances were in danger of uh, dissolution. Right. Um, and, and that for China creates opportunity as well as, as sure, risks, sure, of right. course. And 
if they really believe that there was a potential move for Japan and, and or South Korea to go nuclear, then I do think that would be a factor in their decision making. Ultimately, what they would do, I don't know, but that's, that would be a new factor that they would have to consider. Right. But I don't think it's something that the United States can play to influence Chinese decision making on this. I don't think it's credible. Can I go back? Go ahead, just, Scott, I, okay. I want to go back to my pet negotiating proposal. Uh, because, <laughs> uh, well, no, because I think if we look at what has motivated China historically with regard to the Korean Peninsula, there are two big concerns. Uh, one is the potential uh, for a direct U.S. conflict involving military force in the peninsula. Right. And the other is direct U.S. negotiation with Pyongyang. Uh, because then all roads to Pyongyang don't lead through Beijing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, that's the kind of step that I think maybe needs to be taken in order to induce uh, greater um, attentiveness uh, to uh, these, this issue uh, in Beijing. So you're saying that, that Beijing would actually would feel some pressure if the United States were to engage in bilateral talks with Pyongyang, pressure that, we, that they were in some respect being excluded from this conversation? I think with regards to a tension reduction discussion as opposed to, to a peace discussion, right. where they are you know, part of the armistice, right. that, that it would be plausible to pursue that option. Doug? No, I think that, I mean, the relationship between the, the North Korea and China is not a particularly pleasant one. I mean, there's been a lot of antagonism back and forth. I mean, in many ways, these strike me as frenemies more than genuine allies. I mean, they still use the you know, closer than lips and teeth, but I think that that's really gone by the wayside a long time ago. And there's a lot to suggest that North Korea is very uncomfortable having to rely on any particular country. I mean, the Cold War, they try to play Russia and China off against each other. You know, they, they clearly resist Chinese pressure. I mean, China went through a lot of attempts to convince Kim Jong-il, father of the current dictator, to engage in economic reform, and he had no interest. It's obvious they'd bring him in, take him to Shanghai, look at all this wonderful stuff, and then nothing it would happen. So I, I, can, I think that there's an element there if we believe that the North is at least partially motivated by genuine fear for its security, the notion that having an alternative to having to rely even on China and in discussions with the U.S., I do think offer some possibilities. And indeed, China would recognize that, that, you know, that they've had their own difficulties dealing with the North, so seeing others open up avenues, I think, would cause a reaction. I mean, the, of course, the North has, has used its isolation as a, as a mark of honor, juche, right? That they are, they are in fact able, uh, supposedly, uh, to, to, to live in, in isolation and to thrive. Do you have any thoughts on this, Bonnie? Is, this, is a bilateral approach, uh, should, should we be taking this more seriously uh, in, the, in the new year? Well, I wanted to comment on how China looks at U.S.-North uh, Korea talks. On the one hand, the Chinese say, the crux of the North Korea problem is one between the United States and North Korea, and they should talk about it and they should solve it. And yet, at the same time, <laughs> the Chinese are, as Scott says, uh, quite fearful of the United States and North Korea cutting a deal that could be detrimental to China's interests. Uh, so uh, maybe there is some way that the U.S. can use that. And I, I do like China's, uh, I do like Scott's proposal, uh, the idea of attention uh, reduction uh, discussion, and if that did get underway, then China would want to find a way to be a player 
uh, in some way and would think about how it could use um, whatever tools it has at its disposal to ensure that it's part of the discussion of shaping the future of the Korean Peninsula. After all, that's what China's ultimate worries are, uh, that something will happen on the Korean Peninsula that's going to be detrimental to China and that China will somehow be cut out and won't be able to influence that development. Right. Uh, one, one last question about this before I open it up to the audience, because one of the, the problems, challenges that has been tossed out there is in the event of a, uh, of a regime collapse in North Korea, whether it's sudden or, or, or <coughs> whatnot, um, that the, the risks of refugee flows both north and south would uh, really call on uh, China and the United States and the ROK to, to want to move into North Korea to try to, to deal with this problem. Uh, and yet, and there you have, it seems to me, the very real risk uh, in the absence of planning ahead of time of U.S. and Chinese forces coming into contact with one another, which we've seen this movie before, and it has, actually, it, I wouldn't say it's ended badly. It hasn't ended, right? We're still talking about the frozen conflict. It, it, how much does that concern you, that, that independent of all of this discussion, that this regime could, uh, could actually collapse, uh, and how much thought has there been given to managing uh, what comes after? Well, at least publicly, and I, maybe if Bonnie or Scott have know of other instances. I mean, the Chinese have been very hesitant to talk about this, at least publicly, because it would be appear to be undercutting the regime that they are, in fact, right. supporting and right. claim to you know, be great friends with. I think there are, there's not only humanitarian, a concern about refugees, there's also a concern about loose nuclear weapons. Right. And I, I think that one should not underplay the possibility that China might decide, you know, as Scott you know, indicated, this whole question of the end state. If China does not want a unified Korea allied with America, with U.S. troops, that in fact China might decide you know, it's in its interest to save, I use that in quotes, a North Korean regime and indeed you know, install more pliable you know, kind of leadership there. So the question is, is it a, is it a messy, you know, is there fighting, is there you know, armed factions? You, know, you can play out whatever a collapse might be, but one could imagine a fairly messy you know, where the, the China moves south fairly quickly, you know, that South Korea would view this as being the chance for unification. The U.S. would be called upon, particularly in terms of finding loose nuclear weapons. But I think it could be extraordinarily dangerous, that it is something one would like to have some discussions of. And to my mind, that should be part of any discussion with China and the role it plays on the North is to acknowledge there may be reasons why China sees a need to move troops in. Can that be contained? Can that be temporary? You know, is there a way to discuss that ahead of time as opposed to have it simply spur of the moment, you know, a decision that's taken by the Politburo because at this moment we've got to do something as opposed to thought out and coordinated ahead of time? So there, there have been uh, some track two discussions with Chinese uh, military officers, uh, those who work in intelligence. Uh, the Chinese, yes, as Doug says, have been reluctant to engage in this conversation uh, at an official level, although I think that there's clear recognition in China of the dangers uh, that both of our countries get pulled into another war in North Korea, and that's certainly not something that China wants to see. They recognize that uh, there's a nuclear testing site that's uh, within 100 kilometers of their border, and you can be certain that the Chinese don't want American troops mm -hmm. that close to their border. 
So there's an obvious reason for our two countries to sit down and talk about how we might um, coordinate, even potentially cooperate, but even if we couldn't do that, uh, to ensure that we stay out of each other's way. Um, but I, I appreciate Chinese concerns here. Um, one is that uh, China believes that uh, the United States ultimately wants regime change in North Korea and that it wants to engage in this dialogue with China so that it can ensure that China will cooperate in <laughs> pushing regime change. So that's one concern they have. The other is that, as Doug said, China has a uh, very uh, troubled relationship with North Korea. And this is a relationship that is under control but could tip in a hostile direction. And if the North Koreans perceived that the United States and China were working together to ultimately undermine the regime in North Korea, I think the Chinese actually feel that North Korea could begin to pose a more right. real threat right. to them. <clears throat> um, and then, of course, on top of that, there's the question of what comes afterwards in North Korea. As Scott said, the big question is, what's the vision for the Korean Peninsula? Right. And against the background of what has been called the rebalance to Asia over the last eight years, the Chinese don't trust American intentions. <clears throat> so this is a conversation some uh, uh, Chinese experts have said to me. When we see that the situation in North Korea is, uh, is, is potentially very unstable, could implode, then we'll sit down and we'll <laughs> talk about it. But we all know that th then it's too late. Right, right. All right. Well. Uh Thank you all for uh, your patience. We had a great discussion. I'd like to now uh, open it up to the audience. Um, a couple ground rules here at the Cato Institute. They should be familiar to you. Uh, please wait to be called on uh, and wait for the microphone. That's for the benefit of uh, not merely those in the room, uh, but also those watching online. Um, uh, announce your name and affiliation if you have one. You have a name, but maybe not an affiliation, but announce them if you have one. And uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, here at the Cato Institute, the Jeopardy rule applies. That means frame your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. Uh, down here, uh, yes, sir. Use that mic. Use that Sorry, mic. Let's, let's use that use mic. I'd like to reference a, a meeting I was at at CSIS last week, uh, Global mm -hmm. Security Forum, right. in which there, there was go. a discussion of North Korea. Mm -hmm. And there was a uh, uh, one possible uh, effort that was discussed was a uh, along the lines of what some of you were already suggesting, and that is that there would be more of an effort to have both a, a, um, a dialogue with North Korea, but an expanded one that focuses not only on de denuclearization, which has been the regime efforts over the last eight years, but also the, uh, a peace treaty, mm -hmm. a full peace treaty, which would not necessarily get into questions of unification, but would be that would be pushed into the right uh, ether, mm -hmm. but uh, 
to, to assure that both regimes remain, and both regimes would be in the negotiation along with the U.S. and China. This would be a very different as, uh, approach, but something along the lines of what Scott has talked about and Bonnie mentioned in a slightly different way. I was wondering if you would like to comment on that. The idea that we get off of this one uh, horse denuclearization effort and talk more about a real substantive relationship between the U.S. and North Korea, which did invade North Korea mm -hmm. some 60 years ago mm -hmm. and has been erased from American right. memory. Right. Uh, we need to do more on our part to kind of play up the relationship with North Korea. Right. Do we need do we do we need to do we need to talk about the the end of the Korean War? Is that the, a, an actual peace and treaty? An actual peace treaty, as part of it. Yeah. Well, I think if one hopes to get to denuclearization, it's probably necessary to do some other stuff at the start. I think that for a lot of reasons. You know, the, again, the, the, North Korea is very unlikely to voluntarily yield up its nuclear arsenal. So I think the hope would be, if you're talking about other issues, among other things, the issue of threat reduction, you know, that it would be one of those. And to the extent that the North genuinely believes it is threatened, I mean, I think it was Henry Kissinger who once said, even paranoids have enemies. I assume that the North Korean regime, a number of factors are going on, but one can imagine part of that at least would be fear of attempted regime change. These kinds of discussions could help ease that, and I think would certainly be useful. I don't see us getting to denuclearization without other changes along the way, <clears throat> and certainly without you know, Chinese involvement ultimately. Scott, you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I, what I was suggesting actually is that it's <laughs> premature to talk about peace or denuclearization at this time under these circumstances. Uh, we shouldn't set them aside as long-term objectives, uh, but the circumstances uh, that currently exist uh, will, will, will not allow us to immediately enter into a discussion that is framed in those terms. So we need other intermediate steps even That's before right. we get there. Okay. Uh, here in the front. Yes, sir. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, a Japan native U.S. citizen, member of Reagan foundation. In my opinion, North Korea would not stop nuclear arsenal unless the U.S. troops withdraw from DMZ, period. Okay, that's my opinion. Uh, number two, I think China is overrated. <laughs> oh. Yeah. That's just my opinion. So, so what's uh, the question? I do have a, however, uh, hypothetical questions. Uh, you guys talked about it. Uh, what if South Korea and Japan go nuclear? My question is, should we support that? Uh, that's my question. Uh, okay. Although that's Should. not going to so, happen. So the way, that <clears throat> the way that Doug framed this in the paper, and I encourage you to take a look at it, is we could do this and that we might make that threat and still stop short of, of actually supporting it and not backing away from our commitment and the extended deterrent. The question is, uh, should we? Well, I think there's a difference between actively support and acquiesce in. <laughs> so... 
mean, I do think there are a lot of consequences to this in terms of the larger non-proliferation regime. On the other hand, we have made accommodations with the larger non-proliferation regime at other points. No one in the U.S. political system that I'm aware of is campaigning to get Israel to give up its nuclear weapons. We made a deal with India to essentially recognize them as a nuclear state, a deal that many folks in the non-proliferation community were very unhappy about, mm -hmm. but a deal that reflected the reality, which was Delhi was not going to give up its nuclear weapons, so one could make a decision, do you deal with them and in long term hopefully use them against, at least it's to some degree, a counterbalance to the PRC. So I do think that one can decide that <clears throat> there are unique circumstances that while non-proliferation is a wonderful goal, in fact, we've made deals before, you know, we are prepared to make deals again. There are a lot of consequences of that. I don't think it's a step to take, you know, lightly. I do think that ultimately we shouldn't push these countries to do that, even if we think it would be okay for them to do it. I mean, Japan obviously has a unique history in terms of <coughs> how it views nuclear weapons. And even with South Korea, as we see the current kind of chaos within the government, you know, there are issues of do you want even a friendly democratic government, additional ones to have nuclear weapons. So I wouldn't be, you know, be prepared to say, yes, let's forge ahead. What I'd say is it needs to be discussed, that it is a mistake to assume it away given changing circumstances. The mistake to assume it away? Well, I mean, it sounds to me like what you're proposing is a three for the price of one deal. <laughs> I mean, we're trying to keep North Korea in the penalty box as regard to the NPT. Uh, and so to try to, to move in a direction that actually, uh, you know, opens up the possibility of going nuclear to other states, I think is completely, it would be easier just to accept North Korea as a nuclear state. And I don't think that we want to go down that road. Uh, other questions? Uh, yes, sir. I have two uh, right there uh, in the middle there and then right next to him. Yes, go ahead. Um, Terence Matsuo from the Sasakawa Peace Foundation. Um, is there any realistic chance China will impose sanctions that will prevent North Korea from putting nuclear war warheads on um, ICBMs, uh, given that the next South Korean election will likely result in a return to the sunshine policy? If North Korea continues in its ICBM developments, the U.S. will have to decide whether or not to defy South Korea and preemptively attack North Korean ICBMs. Um, Okay that's, actually, okay, that's actually a couple questions in there, right? Oh, uh, sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. I just want to make sure that we keep track of them. So, so the first question is, will China seriously impose sanctions on North Korea? Secondly, in light of the political uh, uh, unrest that we've talked about, the, the possibility of a return to sunshine policy, and then the third question, uh, and does that affect North Korea's calculations uh, and China's calculations? And thirdly, the question about uh, military action against ICBM sites, correct? Yeah. Three questions. Uh yeah, I think he's about to add basically. more. And, and is there, let, let's, let's take those three, because those are, those are all three good questions. I wouldn't want to lose track of them. I, I, I want to just Please. start with the first one, because yes. really what the, what the questioner said was, is, would China support sanctions that will stop North Korea from putting a warhead on, a, on, on, a, on an ICBM? Uh, that, I mean, that's, that's a very specific goal. I think that our, our goal is broader than that. It's, it, it's, it, it's to... Uh, <coughs> force North Korea to make a choice between <laughs> its own economic development uh, and, uh, and, and development of uh, further development of nuclear weapons 
uh, but I don't think anybody believes that somehow uh, China is going to be the, the miracle provider here that's going, just because it's, it implements sanctions, that it will in fact prevent North Korea from being able to deliver an ICBM, uh, a warhead on an ICBM. But the broader question is, is China cooperating with the sanctions? And to some extent, the answer is yes. We have seen um, over the course of the last uh, two Security Council resolutions greater willingness by China to put pressure on uh, North Korea. Now, we just said we have a new Security Council resolution, and the Chinese are saying that they're going to uh, comply with it. And I think that you will find, um, at least at the beginning, this tends to be the pattern with Chinese behavior, that they are in compliance. And then the Chinese assess what is the nature of the uh, of stability in North Korea. And if they see that stability is in jeopardy, they're going to pull back because they prioritize stability over denuclearization. Right. And, and so I think ultimately you have to say, yes, China's doing more to put pressure on uh, North Korea. But the fact that they can't control this process, because it's not only UN sanctions, everybody else is implementing secondary sanctions now. And the Chinese said very clearly, they don't support any unilateral sanctions. So they're quite concerned about how this could um, be something that in the future they really can't control. But yes, China is putting more pressure um, and imposing sanctions. And ever since the first nuclear test in 2006, the Chinese have accepted that a policy of positive incentives that is devoid of pressure is not going to work. And so we have seen some Chinese cooperation, which is growing on the implementation of sanctions. I mean, the problem is that the North is not inclined to take advice from Beijing, which means I think you need more than sanctions, you need kind of bone crunching sanctions. And that's the discussion is cutting off energy and food. And that is where I think the critical thing is Bonnie indicated, at the moment, China continues to prioritize stability over denuclearization. So <laughs> the kind of sanctions that would be necessary, I think, to have a possibility of influencing decision-making in Pyongyang in a way that we think necessary remains very unlikely. That they, they do not want these developments, but they also do not want an implosion on, you know, south of the Yalu. Yeah, your other questions, the, the current betting... Well, I'm curious about where Scott... I'd like to hear from Scott on, on this question about the, the political uh, situation in South Korea. Is there... Uh, do, do, does the North have reason to believe that the, they might be facing a more congenial South Korean government six or eight or 12 months from now? That's in play uh, at this point. There is a possibility that we would see a new South Korean president who wants to pursue something that might look like Sunshine Policy 2.0. Mm -hmm. The only problem is actually that Sunshine Policy 2.0, under the current level of sanctions mm -hmm. uh, that have been passed by the UN, is probably not fully possible. Okay. Uh, so there is constraint there. Uh, China would obviously welcome a return to that kind of mm -hmm. approach or policy, uh, and it would put a dent in efforts to uh, put full-scale pressure uh, on North Korea. And why why would China, why does China look favorably on uh, on the Sunshine Policy or the possibility of one? Uh, they see it as, uh, a, it's really a kind of a barrier that prevents the possibility of uh, direct conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in some ways, um, a policy predisposed, predisposed toward dialogue 
uh, with the North and cooperation with the North is going to re remove the scenario that they fear most, mm -hmm. uh, and that is um, some kind of conflict on the peninsula. Okay, collapse or conflict. You know, th there was a very specific aspect of your question pertaining to the placement of nuclear warheads on, on an ICBM, uh, and very specific, and it, it raises the question about what red lines, if right now China favors stability over denuclearization, which everyone has said during the course of this event, um, what what red lines might they see as being as tipping the balance uh, away from their preference for st st uh, stability over denuclearization, or again other other things short of denuclearization, which we've also talked about? At what point does does China say, okay, this is where bone crunching sanctions? I wrote that down because that was really a sort of evocative. Uh, uh, we haven't yet tested that, right? We don't know. Right now, the, the, the evidence is that they still favor uh, the status quo over, over the alternatives, right? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, Ken Meyercord, World Docs. <clears throat> I'm always amazed in discussions like this how people throw up their hands and say, what more can we do and talk about sanctions and, and uh, military actions, uh, but never mention what I think is the most obvious and, uh, and effective uh, option we have, and that is the removal of American troops from the Korean Peninsula. There was some th talk about threat reduction, vaguely and, and in general terms only. I, I, to talk about a presumed threat to North Korea, as if it isn't actual, I think is really having your head pretty deeply buried in the sand. Well, uh, I think that Doug has said, now hold on a second, I think Doug has said that. But, yeah, he talked, but, but he, to, to your, I didn't hear remove American troops but, from the Korean Peninsula. To, to your question, I, I, I'm, I'm going to frame a question, and you tell me if I, if I got it right. Um, the nature of the threat posed to the North Korean regime is not exclusively the presence of U.S. forces on the South Korean, in, the South Korean, uh, in South Korea, in the Korean Peninsula. In other words, you could remove U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula, and there would still be a threat, potentially, to North Korea, right? So, so I think that Doug has addressed that point, and he does in the paper, but I'm curious about what, is that, is that sufficient to uh, ease their concerns and then uh, allow, allow them moving towards uh, denuclearization? Do you believe that, Doug? Look, I've written a book and co-written another one that both argue for removal of U.S. troops today, you know, phased out. So, I mean, I've made that argument separately. The question is the context of dealing with China. I mean, to my mind, a North Korea could easily view itself as still under threat so long as the U.S. has aircraft carriers in the region, has a nuclear umbrella over South Korea, and might be prepared to back up its supposed lackeys in the South in an invasion of the North. <clears throat> so I don't think that the troops themselves are the only aspect. I think they're a highly symbolic one, and that, and in my view, should be part of the discussion. In the context of China, I think the real issue is if you looking at the end game, if you want China to help, I mean, I think Bonnie picked up the point very well, which is from China's standpoint, the U.S. is asking China to help the U.S. achieve its objective of regime change, <laughs> which creates an end game that China does not like. That one of the issues of that end game is a united Korea allied with America and U.S. troops in the peninsula. That is something I think the U.S. needs to deal with in trying to make attractive to, to China 
any cooperation with the United States. If we don't acknowledge this different of endgames, and Scott also talked about this, the, the different vision of the endgames, it's very hard to imagine cooperation because that endgame is a hugely important aspect of China's position that it takes today in dealing with North Korea and its willingness to impose, you know, bone-crunching sanctions right. or whatever. Right. Can I ask a question? Question. Uh, South Korea has two and a half times the population of North Korea. It's the ninth largest economy in the world. It has a mutual defense pact with the world's only superpower. Uh, and we're told its uh, potential enemy, North Korea, is barely able to feed their own people and on the brink of collapse. Why does South Korea need 30,000 American troops in their song? That was a question. Thank you, sir. I've asked that question many <laughs> times and have never received an answer that I viewed as satisfactory. Well, I, Bonnie or Scott, I mean, is that, do, do you have thoughts on this? I think the main issue is related to uh, the nuclear capability at this point. It's really the asymmetric capability that the North Koreans have developed, you could almost argue as a way to keep the U.S. there. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the conventional balance, it's absolutely correct that South Korea uh, in the last decade, you know, even before that, has moved into a position of potentially being able to handle issues on the peninsula by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the longer term issue for South Korea ends up being what about the neighborhood? Right. Right. Uh, and there, it's not so much a matter of uh, troop presence uh, as the fact that any small state surrounded by large states is probably going to seek alliance as a mechanism for trying to ensure security. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bonnie? No? No. Okay. Other questions? Uh, right here in front. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, Hayden Wetzel. Uh, the um, alternatives for um, North Korea are always discussed as either total collapse or taking over, being taken over by South Korea. Is there a possibility that the Chinese could engineer a, a military coup in Pyongyang and establish a friendly government? Thank you. Well, I would assume the Chinese have intelligence capabilities and connections. On the other hand, the North Koreans have been very effective over the years in trying to destroy any such connections. I mean, Kim, Kim Il-sung, in, in his kind of moving towards power, I mean, took out basically the pro-Soviet, the pro-Chinese, other you know, factions. Uh, it, I, it would be hard to guarantee, and the problem from the Chinese standpoint, I mean, Bonnie mentioned the fear of the North turning against China, that if China tried to engineer such a takeover and failed, one could imagine the, you know, the reaction would not be very pleasant in Pyongyang. My reaction would be that's most likely if there's already an implosion, an impending failure. If it appears that the North Korean state is imploding, then I would imagine China probably working pretty hard to try to come up with something to stabilize and bring to power a more pliable leadership. But it's speculation. I, don't know if so I would just add to that there that... China's understanding of what is going on in North Korea is not what it was um, years ago. I think that the Chinese don't have good, good ties. Uh, they don't have good channels. Uh, most of their go-to people have been eliminated. Um, and the North Koreans don't particularly want to share uh, intelligence information. We, we see this manifest in, in, in many ways. Uh, in, uh, the, the military dialogue between the, the two countries is sterile. 
uh, from the conversations that I've had with people in the, in, in the Chinese military, even uh, track two discussions uh, are, are, not, uh, are not very substantive. And of course, we have not had a visit by Kim Jong-un uh, to China. Right. Uh, and so, and there aren't, there haven't even been senior level contacts for some time. So I have the sense that the Chinese just don't have um, a, a really good, good knowledge about what's going on. And and trying to orchestrate a coup is very risky. <laughs> and even Doug's scenario, in which you have an imploding regime in North Korea, do the Chinese want to try mm. to choose a horse and? and help that horse win, right. and then take the risk of being seen. What if the other side, or there may be several uh, you know, competing factions, uh, comes, becomes victorious, and China was seen as backing the wrong horse? And then what's China's relationship with this new regime in North Korea? Chinese aren't that stupid. They're going to play it very carefully. Um, yeah, I would just say that that question raises what I've uh, written about as the uh, intervention legitimacy paradox that actually both South Korea and China face. Uh, and that is, uh, if you intervene uh, to try to shape a new regime in North Korea, you also have to be concerned about how the rest of the world is going to see it. And so for China to take uh, a preemptive step like that uh, would essentially give proof to uh, a lot of the Chinese threat theories around. Uh, and so that would bear risks and costs uh, for China. You know, same thing, frankly, for South Korea in terms of you know, if they try to intervene uh, in the North, uh, I guarantee you the Chinese are going to be raising that question in the UN saying, well, you know, the South Korean constitution is not a good enough basis upon which to justify uh, an intervention. Uh, you need to get approval from the UN body. Okay. I think we have time for about one more question. Uh, uh, make it a good one. Anyone want to? Uh, Lots of pressure here. Uh, <laughs> that was too much pressure. Exactly. I put too much pressure yeah. on Now that. nobody wants oh, to raise okay, their we got, hand. We got one there right there. Right, last question. Make it a good one, sir. <laughs> How about I make it an optimistic one? Yeah, there you go. All right, since we're going into Christmas. There you go. Is it a possibility that um, we can foresee a way in which we could work together and not end up dispersing nuclear weapons across the world. <laughs> that's How a about good, that? that's a, it, is it possible? Is this, is this a realistic possibility? Doug, what do you think? We're, we're, we, we, again, coming, kind of comes full circle to when we first started talking about this paper. Um, we knew it was a long shot. We knew that there, were, there are serious differences in terms of US and China interests with respect to North Korea, especially in the Korean Peninsula generally. Um, uh, where would you rate the, the odds of, of, of this working? And, and, uh, and because the implications of failure are, uh, are pretty dire. I think it's a long shot. And I think it has gotten a bit longer with the new administration in that <clears throat> there's not a lot of Chinese trust in US intentions. And to have an administration come in that is talking in ways that might suggest a trade war and seems to have whether intentionally or clumsily, raise the issue of Taiwan, uh, and to tweet all sorts of kind of antagonistic sentiments is not one that is likely to be seen in Beijing as a, a good negotiating environment. On the other hand, I think folks in Beijing are smart and are concerned and recognize 
This is a difficult issue for everyone concerned and are trying to feel their way through competing objectives, where they really do support denuclearization. It's just they really care about stability. So to the extent that they think the U.S. is serious about coming up with a policy that addresses both of those, I would hope there'd be receptivity in Beijing. And then I think it depends upon having some good negotiators and people who can work through. You know, if you can come up with a deal with Iran, you know, I mean, that took a lot of effort. I think it's, that's the kind of effort and farsightedness one needs that over time you build some trust and, and address the issues. So I wouldn't give up hope, and that, that's why we, we published the paper, is that we hope that this might at least encourage people to think about the process and move it along. Excellent. All right, well, I want to thank you all again for joining us. Uh, we will uh, now adjourn to the George M. Yeager Conference Center on our second floor for lunch and continued discussion. Uh, our staff can show you the way up the spiral staircase. Uh, there are restrooms up there as well. And please join me in thanking uh, Scott and Doug and Bonnie. Uh, uh -huh.